Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host today, along with Ronaldo Brudico, for our program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Ronaldo, as you all know, is president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. I also want to thank all of our listeners that, again, our listenership has jumped up another 10, almost 15 percent over the last month. Uh, and we're very pleased and grateful that you're all listening and paying attention. Um, again, during today's lightning round, I'm sorry, let me go back a second here. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering two major topics along with our lightning round. As always, we include your questions and comments. And we already have had several questions in the queue and several people who are going to be connecting to during the course of the call. However, if you would like to dial in and place a question with us, the number is area code 347-989-8946, and you hit the number one key for that purpose. One of the purposes of our monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. On today's topics, and we may have to shortchange some of these because of the current events going on in Egypt today and a little bit of an overload on our program, first is the Academy's projection for global and U.S. economic growth this year and the potential impact of, on the world's economy of the unrest sweeping through the Mideast. Second, we will also be talking about the new Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission report and whether or not that portends another financial crisis. And last, if we do have a chance to get to it, we'll be talking about financial engineering, what it is, and why you should be concerned about it. After our first segment, we'll be doing our expanded lightning round, which is a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes, such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate, with an emphasis this month on water, including the issues of privatization and desalinization. Ronaldo will also be doing a brief two-minute update on Ford, and why he likes the stock despite some recent turmoil. With that, let me turn it over to you, Ronaldo, with your introduction of the day. Uh, thank you, Howard. And I also want to just echo what you said a moment ago about our listenership being up. Uh, it's It's been growing dramatically every month, as we've reported, and that means that you folks who are listening have been telling your friends, and they're getting value out of it. And uh, we see the number of people live on the show has gone up listening, so I hope the question, the number of questions will go up. And uh, we've seen that the number of people who pick this up as an MP3 file after the show has grown up dramatically as well. So we're really excited about that because, as you know, the World Business Academy, which I founded in 1986, is really dedicated to providing the kind of information you'll get on this program across a wide variety of subjects, everything from how you can enhance your own personal wealth portfolio to how you can understand the events of the day and how we can interface between business and society in a way that consciously evolves not only our country, but our our planet and the entire world to a new level of prosperity and a new level of conscious love and acceptance for each other in a way to create peace from what is now uh, a growing um, set of challenges brought on, as you'll hear later on in the show, from rising food prices, rising oil prices, etc. But with that as a brief entry point, uh, it, we couldn't co- not comment this morning, I think, right off the bat, just briefly on the incredible thing that's happening in, in Egypt. Apparently, this is a very widespread movement. It's, uh, it's, you know, to produce a million people in any square in any Arab country where the main event is not doing something to, to, to display your displeasure with America is quite an interesting uh, development. 
it's, it's the beginning of the Arab street, as they call it, the common people in Arab in, in the Arab world, rising up and saying we've had autocratic leadership in the case of Mubarak for 30 years. The, the military, which is what Mubarak came from, that was a military coup, is the most trusted institution still in Egypt. And so the, the, the population there is asking the, the military to ensure a safe transition from an autocratic corrupt regime, which has been there too long, to, um, to something that's more democratically elected. And it's interesting that the people would select the military as the one institution in society that could make that transition happen uh, with minimum amount of chaos and bloodshed. I say that because I think the military has done a brilliant job in Egypt, the Egyptian military, of staying in an appropriate role at all steps along in this process. And I think that's why public trust in Egypt has gone up for them. We should all note that the Egyptian military, for about 30 years now, at all levels, uh, has been trained by the U.S. military. So the level of contacts that the U.S. government has through its military with the Egyptian military is really quite extraordinary, uh, far greater than perhaps even the State Department's contacts with the, with, with the, with the official government of, of Egypt. Why am I, co I commenting? Because what happened in the last 48 hours is there was a, a labor strike on the Suez Canal. Now, the Suez Canal is important for a whole bunch of reasons. I'll touch on that in a second. But the, the fact that the labor movement in Egypt has decided that they are going to link up with the peaceful protesters in Tahir Square means that Mubarak will leave. And we've received reports this morning, as many of you may know, uh, that Mubarak will be resigning tonight, probably in favor of his vice president, Suleiman, but I doubt that he will last that long either. So what we're going to have is a transition to something that's more open in Egypt. I don't know if it will be truly democratic, but it's going to be a step in that direction. And it will go in the direction of more accountability. Why is this so important? Well, two reasons. First of all, let's talk about the Suez Canal. Approximately 2.9 to 3 million barrels of oil goes through the Suez Canal and or the, uh, the, the Egyptian pipeline every day. And uh, that roughly is the margin of error for the global oil consumption pattern. We have about a 2 to 2.5% 2 maximum uh, reserve capacity, if you believe the Saudis, and I'm not sure I do. And you can't turn reserve capacity on as quickly as you can turn a pipeline or the Suez Canal off. So with the strike in the Suez Canal right now, what it's saying is it's bringing the attention of the Western world to the, once again, to the fragility of the oil lifeline for the Middle East. Uh, in upcoming shows, I'm going to be talking more about that fragility, why the U.S. Pentagon has determined that this, the, the dependence on foreign oil is the number one security threat to the United States, and we'll be talking about how we can calculate what will happen not only to the price of oil, but to all of us in the future. That said... 2.9 million barrels is a big, big issue. If either one, the pipeline or the Suez Canal, were to close permanently or even for any you know, extended period of time, a week even, would be a problem. So the, the, the march that is planned for the presidential palace in Egypt by tomorrow night likely will produce a resignation by Mubarak, I think, tonight, and certainly not later than Friday. What we do from there, I think, is exciting because although there is turmoil in the Arab world, so we know the turmoil, for example, the president of Yemen, who has been in power for way too long also. He's already said he won't run and his son won't run in Yemen. We know what's happened in Tunisia, change of government. Uh, Algeria has announced it's going to drop its 19 years uh, set of restrictions, um, which is basically uh, they, they've been running a, a government based on a military fiat for 19 years. All of these things are showing a breath of air blowing through the Middle East, which is somewhat destabilizing to the entrenched powers in the Middle East, which would be the Sunnis, meaning Saudi Arabia, where Yemen sits on, on, on the lower boundary. Most people don't know this, but over 240 villages 
in southern Saudi Arabia, on the border of Yemen, Yemen, have already been abandoned by the Saudis as indefensible. So we've got a situation happening where the Academy's long-term recommendation that this country accelerate its, its track onto renewable energies, the military's awareness that we have to accelerate that track to renewable energies, it's all coming together in a way that the, the instability of the Middle East, the Shiite-Sunni conflict, and all the things that we've been talking about in this program over all the many months are all coming to a head more quickly now. And although I think the, uh, the U.S. is doing an excellent job of, of straddling the line in Egypt and coaxing, coaxing Mubarak out but not trying to be ham-handed or ham-fisted about it, not being overly dictatorial about it, I think we've, we've picked up some ground. But we still are we're standing on, a, on an extraordinarily unstable platform. And that platform is what produces the oil that not only our country runs on, but the world runs on. Why is that significant? Well, we're going to talk about asset classes later in this call. Obviously, the geopolitical considerations of what I just said are enormous. But it's also important for you to know what's going to happen to the price of commodities this year, including the commodity called oil, the commodity called wheat, the commodity called soybeans, etc. But it kind of stops with that. That introduction yeah. to um, the world of the day, and um, turn it over to you, Howard, for where you'd like to go next with our agenda. Okay, well, the, that does segue nicely, because what we're going to be talking about is our projections, the Academy's projections for global and U.S. economic growth this year. But I think two things to look at in terms of Egypt, uh, three actually. One is the fact that the Egyptian army does have universal military service, so that the people who serve in that army, they are the Egyptian population which is why there has not been this sense of these are hired thugs beating up the rest of the population. Um, an important side note to keep in mind. The other two points um, are things that, for example, Tom Friedman has talked about very actively, which is the spread of technology and the leveling of the playing field and the world is flat. Um, a lot of this activity in Egypt has been generated and communicated through the Internet, tools like Facebook. There is an enormous leveling of communication uh, through that tool, uh, which is having profound effects on Egypt, which has had been a relatively open society. But the next thing is really what triggers um, a lot of the problems, which is the steady rise in the price of agricultural and commodity products around the world, and that the Egyptian and Tunisian revolutions, if you want to call them that at this point, or protests, however you want to define that term, have been in part triggered by inflation in food prices. And that, again, our topic, our first topic is the Academy's projection for global and U.S. economic growth. Ronaldo, what do you see and how does all this play? You there? Hello. Yeah, Howard, can you hear me? Yes, we can. You're that was a click on the line I couldn't hear. Um, you know, Howard, one of the things that I just got to gotta footnote this, you talked about Facebook a moment ago. Mm-hmm. When the Egyptian government shut down Twitter and they shut down the Internet, they didn't realize that Facebook could create an, an adaptation that literally launched in less than 72 hours from a company they acquired. And before the guy who owned that company was formally on the payroll, they already had the application up, which gave Facebook a new tool to be able to be used as an organizing tool for the, for the, for the teaming masses in, in, in Egypt, meaning that the speed at which the technology morphed exceeded the ability of a sovereign nation to cut it off. I think this is a fascinating moment in history. We should be looking at this, and it's absolutely correct. The, the opening of the Internet around the world, as hard as governments, and China's the best at it, by the way, as hard as governments try to suppress the use of the Internet because of, quote, social instability issues, close quote, 
it's never going to work because you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And I just think it was hilarious what Facebook did this week, and I want to applaud them for it. Okay, global economy. Uh, I'm, I'm actually, this is a fun one for me because I'm going to take exception with uh, Howard's employer, Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley is calling for a 4% U.S. economic, real economic growth this year, which would mean 4% above the rate of inflation. I think what's wrong with that number is they're assuming inflation is going to be too low. So I was joking with Howard a little before the show saying, I had to pick on your employer today, Howard. I think that the real growth rate in the U.S. is probably going to be closer to 3.2%, uh, maybe 3.3 if we're lucky. Uh, and the reason I say that is because I think we're going to see continuing deterioration in municipal payrolls and state payrolls. I think that the uh, unemployment rate that's now at 9% in the U.S., there's an anomaly in that number, clearly. Uh, part of that anomaly, folks, is probably related to the huge snowstorm because the midpoint of the month is when that data is collected on how many people are working, and that particular week, half the East Coast was shut down. So nobody was working. <laughs> but because of those anomalies, it looks to me like we're going to be seeing a 3.2 to 3.5% GDP growth. Best would be 4%, but that would be before allowing for inflation, and I believe inflation is going up. Let me give you the, um, the picture from abroad, though. Because our economy is recovering, we would tend to overestimate how the, um, the overall global economy is going to do this year. The reason is the global economy actually is having its recovery slow a bit. And that slowing, and there's a two-tier recovery going on globally. The, 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 the underdeveloped nations, the BRIC nations, are growing much faster than the developed countries. So in a place like the U.S., you're going to have, you know, three and a quarter, three and a half percent growth. But when you adjust for inflation, it's going to come down by a point or two at least, um, maybe four percent adjusted down by a point or two. So you talk about, you know, three and a quarter real growth rate max, I think. But you've got places like Great Britain where it's negative. You've got places like Japan, which have been, you know, 20 years in, in going sideways. Uh, and, and, and having, and by the way, their bonds being reevaluated internationally and, re, and marked down. So you've got a lot of places which are stagnant. And you've got places which had initially better growth that are slowing down. So you, 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 when I look around and I see, the, um, for example, the Organization for Economic uh, Cooperation and Development, or OECD, as um, they're referred to, and they're looking at a global economic rate of 4.2%. You know, I think that's a little bit low. They originally were, last May, they predicted 4.5. I think that number is actually going to be closer to accurate. But what's going to be really the big the big hook this year, which everybody has to watch. Remember last month on the show, we said, go invest in food commodities. It's not too late because they're going to keep going up and up and up. And we gave three reasons why they would go up. All those reasons are bearing fruit. Commodities have gone up in the last month. They will continue to go up. And I would say that if you're not paying attention to how much of Australia was underwater last year, a third of the, last month, a third of the country, how long the city of Brisbane was underwater, almost two weeks, if you're not looking at the, the droughts in China, which are depressing the wheat crop, if you're not looking at the, the hoarding going on in cotton in China and elsewhere, if you're not looking at the drought in Argentina, if you're not looking at the, at the other events, Pakistani flooding, you will miss the fact that climate change is now coming home to roost, and that's going to push food prices up. So I see no, no, let me, let me interrupt inflation a going up. Let me interrupt a second, too, that when prices go up, you have wealthy nations able to afford or absorb that increase, but poor nations cannot, and that people in poor nations such as Egypt, Tunisia, tend to spend a much larger portion of their personal gross domestic product um, on food. And consequently, well, it that's hits them true. much harder. No, and that's true, Howard, and you, you called that 
earlier in this program where you talked about how the Arab street was reflecting this. I mean, clearly in Tunisia it was about food prices. Egypt it's a big factor, as well as, by the way, high unemployment in the youth sector. That's a big factor going on in the Arab street. Uh, it's a factor in Algeria. It's a factor in Yemen. So that is a big, big factor. But let's not underestimate what happens to the U.S. For every dollar that the U.S. barrel of oil goes up, for every dollar, for a day, we lose $12 million instantly that we never get back. And that 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 change in the, in, in the suction of money out of the economy when the U.S. needs that money to rebuild itself, and the other pressures it puts on our agricultural sectors and our manufacturing sectors, that pushes up inflation. And even though Ben Bernanke, what, yesterday and the day before, was reassuring the Congress that he doesn't see inflation as a problem this year, I think Bernanke is whistling by the graveyard. We are going to have inflation. That's going to be the big story. And by the way, if you didn't notice it this morning, just this morning, the 30-year mortgage rate went above 5.05%. We may not have time to talk about real estate, but if we do, remember what I said several shows ago, this will be the best time in history to buy a home because the prices are at the all-time low and the the mortgages, the value, the cost of a mortgage is an all-time low. When you have those two together, you have almost a certainty that you'll do well in the real estate market. And so I continue to see strengthening there, as well as I see strengthening in the U.S. real estate market because the foreclosure machine is being shut down. 27% fewer foreclosures this quarter than last quarter a year ago. Because of the illegality of many of the large lenders, and they were processing paper improperly, but also because the banks now realize that if this thing starts to crawl out, they'll make more money by helping people refinance than they will by slamming the door on them. So globally, I'm looking for probably 4.5% real growth rate. I think that's going to be pushed by China, Brazil, uh, India will all be major contributors to that. Um, Russia will do well. Uh, Oil right now, depending on whether you take the Saudi price, it it got over $100 a barrel in Saudi, as you know, last week. Um, West Texas crude, I think, got up to about 92 intermediate crude, 92.93. So we're looking at, at... Oil prices up. We're talking at gasoline prices up, which affects the entire economy. We're talking about food prices up across the board. So I see inflation as the big story, not the recovery. The recovery is on pace and will accelerate. It's inflation that's going to be the problem coming forward. Okay. Let me remind our viewers, uh, before you go on, Ronaldo, that if they'd like to dial in, the number is 347-989-8946, and you hit the number one key. So any other broad strokes you want to paint on the economy and your projections as you see them for the academy? Yeah, and, and, and just have people, if anybody wants to question any sub-region, I intentionally didn't talk about all the various regions in the world. By the way, I want to point a really large geopolitical threat, and it's not Egypt. I think the Egyptian thing is going to resolve itself favorably. I think it's, uh, it's in Nigeria. Uh, there was a declaration of an all-out war against the Shell platforms in Nigeria just a week ago because the peace treaty is breaking down between the insurgents and the government there. Uh, we get so much oil out of Nigeria that I believe that that's a bigger Achilles heel, frankly, than the Suez Canal or the Egyptian pipeline, and no one's really looking at that. I, I think that's something to watch because it could have a major effect. Now, I think the biggest story that we should touch on in conjunction with the global economy is global currencies. So we've been saying to this audience now for almost year and a half, we thought that the Brazilian real at 59 to 60 is a safe bet because they'll do everything they can to keep it below 60. And for you who didn't see the announcement yesterday, um, the new president of Brazil uh, actually is engaging in a program to push down some of the speculation. It, it is an attempt to keep the real at 60 or below. They've done a brilliant job of doing that the last three, four months in the face of a lot of American challenges. 
I don't know how good they can do over the long haul. It's going to be very hard to keep it low because the U.S. dollar continues to be, I think, in trouble. Um, and the instability over the Middle East probably is propping it up. There's a little bit of the, you know, flight to safety concept. But, you know, the Canadian dollar has risen, I'm going to say, about 14 15% against the U.S. dollar in the last, certainly 12 to 14% in the last year. Well, no, the, do, you, do you see the Canadian dollar rise more of reflection of the strength of the Canadian economy or, more specifically, is it related to the fact that Canada is a major oil producer and also one of the nations that's our biggest supplier? No, it's, it's both. I mean, basically, Canada is an extraordinarily commodities-rich country, so it not only has enormous amounts of oil and will become our largest oil importer if they continue with the tar sands development that they're talking about. Uh, number two, it is also an enormous – it has raw materials, natural resources that just won't quit. And climate change is probably going to actually help them because it's going to increase their growing season and make it warmer further north. So my guess is that Canada is going to be one of these great, strong horses. And by the way, their banking system never had a problem all through 2008, 2010, because they have a very well-regulated banking system. So none of their banks got in trouble. So their Canadian banks are some of the strongest banks in the world right now and have been all since 2008. So you've got a very tightly knit country, small population. Uh, you've got a great neighbor next door that consumes raw materials like crazy called the United States. You've got a currency that is, if the Canadians let it rise a little, and I, I'm, my, the, what I'm picking up coming out of Ottawa, the capital of Canada, I'm picking up that they're going to let it rise another 10% at least. So the Canadian dollar is going to appreciate against the U.S. dollar, I think. Uh, the Brazilians will do their darndest to keep it, as they have been at 60 or below. But I think they're going to find that a bigger struggle 12 months from today than it is today. Um, you're going to see some creeping upward of the renminbi, which is the Chinese yuan. You're going to see that go up a little bit. I don't think a huge amount. You're going to see some readjustments probably in the euro. Uh, and by the way, I'm a, I'm a bigger fan of the euro than most people right now, although it's clear they have not figured out the solution to how do you bring a country like Greece to become to end the party when Germany's paying the bill. And the by the way, the German proposals which went on the table last week were just silly. They're not going to work. So... It's clear that the Europeans are struggling with how do we make this common currency thing work, and the British, of course, are happy as clams that they're not in it. The British, on the other hand, probably are overdoing their austerity program. Uh, so far, they've avoided a massive problem, but they are double-dipping. I mean, they've gone back into recession. And we predicted on this show many months ago that if Cameron pursued that policy, that would happen, and it did happen. So I'm really interested that... If we saw it coming, I don't know why Cameron didn't see it coming, or did he accept the double dip as the price of straightening out his economy? I hope he didn't, but he may have. Ronaldo, do you want to make maybe a comment or two about how the dilemma of trying to be fiscally responsible, cut municipal, city, county, state budgets, federal budgets, affects employment and affects the recession and the recovery from the recession? What's the link between those two for our viewers? Kind of simply, can you define that for them? Yeah, I think the tragedy is the, the, as you know, there hasn't been one jobs bill introduced in the current Congress, not one. Here we are struggling with 9% or more unemployment, and the real number is probably around 9. I think you're going to see some adjustments that are going to come in the next few months, but it's around 9 right now, maybe 9.2, 8, 8.9, somewhere in that range. And um, what's, what's going to happen, and we've, been, we've argued for this for, I mean, literally, we wrote a paper on trickle-up economics. I'm going to say, gosh, it must have been at least three years ago where we said the, the, the federal government should be in the business of supplying emergency capital to the states so that basic services would not have to be cut. So the states should not be firing policemen, 
firemen, teachers. That's crazy at a time when you have a big recession. What you want to do is lend money to the states like we lent it to Citicorp. And frankly, you'll get a better return if you lend it to the states. You've got to lend these states the money for specific purposes to keep their employment levels up at the state level. So, so A, state services aren't reduced, and B, so you don't flood the market with unemployed state workers. Now, there's a legitimate concern, and, and this is made, and particularly my Republican friends are saying this, and it's very legitimate, that the, the state pension programs for public workers are way overdone. It's too rich and, and too expensive, and you can see that, by the way, in the federal level, the post office just had to pay a massive amount of money for future medical benefits in not even yet incurred. I mean, they're going to be incurred many years in the future. So the number of of Republicans make the comment, look, what we have to do is get the unions, because uh, they are heavily unionized typically, and they've got to get these state workers, these unions and the, and the non-unionized state workers, to be willing to give back a little bit of the excess in the pension and welfare column. And I think that's a legitimate, that's a legitimate request. Conversely, what the Republicans have not been willing to trade for that is some stability in the labor market by saying, okay, and if they do that, we'll let the federal government loan some money to the cities and the states so we don't have to keep firing these people. So there's got to be a balance, and it can't be something where people see it as a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. It has to be seen as what's the smart thing to do with the labor market. And what you don't want to do is have all these police, teachers, firemen, A, because it's not a thing that's safe for society. You want to dump them on the street in the middle of a, of a high unemployment rate. You want to be able to keep these cities and states going so that their revenue streams can come back. Now, in a place like California, you've got a Democratic governor, Jerry Brown. Most people would say a liberal. Uh, and I don't think that label means anything, but people would call him that. And he's calling for a major changes. I mean, he's saying eliminate community development grants. He's saying um, give me givebacks, particularly he's picking on some of the larger state labor unions. And he's saying everybody's got to chip in here if we're going to close a $25 billion budget gap. He's right. And instead of taking shots at him, what the Republicans in California need to do is say, okay, that sounds like a Republican agenda. Let's go with it. It doesn't matter if it came out of Jerry Brown's mouth. So the politics of this has got to go away so that the thoughtful solutions which are there can be implemented regardless of whether they come from a Republican mouth or a Democratic mouth. It's time for people to demand solutions from their political leadership, and that's not happening in this late season in Washington in the Congress right now. I do see it starting to happen at the state level. If they can just get some capital to stave the crisis. We did it for the banks, got very little for it. We did it for the automobile industry, Chrysler and GM. We're getting all our money back because of that. We'll eventually get all our money back out of AIG, although we had a hiccup this morning or yesterday, as you know, on the offering, um, because they had to increase the reserves by $4 billion for unintended things they weren't really accounting for. But all these, these, um, all the TARP money and all the stimulus money that has gone out since the day Obama took office, 100% of it will be returned to the public, probably with interest. So those were good investments we made, and we need to keep making those investments to stabilize our society, grow our jobs, and raise the economy. When you do that, the ratio of debt to economic activity drops. Very good. Ronaldo, with that, talking about this, it's time to segue into our, our lightning round. Um, and again, a reminder, if you'd like to call in and place a question, the number is 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. Our lightning round is, again, a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate with particular emphasis on ideas you can use yourself. This month, we're going to be talking about water, and we had an email question come in recently from Lisa Smith, 
And Lisa, if you'd like to dial in, uh, we'd love to have you pose your question in a few minutes. Um, but Ronaldo, why don't you start the segment? Uh, and then after this, we're also going to go to a quick update on a particular stock that uh, Ronaldo's been talking about. Uh, with that, Ronaldo, back to you. Sure. Okay. So you heard what I said about real estate in passing. I, I believe that um, that residential real estate, uh, for the most part, in most major metros, has stabilized and is, in some metros, starting to move up. There are places where, of course, it's still severe. I'm not looking for happy outcomes near term in Florida for a lot of reasons, including weather-related. And uh, Nevada's got a long way. Las Vegas particularly has a long way to go. That said, in a lot of markets which have been particularly ailing, take L.A. as an example, I see it, I see a lot of improvement. Uh, and in many markets which had minimal disruption in the first place, places like Charlotte and whatnot, um, they're already doing well. So residential real estate I'm seeing as having bottomed out. And now that the 30-year fixed is at 5%, I believe we need to move if we're going to buy a house move pretty soon because the rates on the mortgages, given what I said about inflation, are going to be pumping up this year, which means the real cost to own that house. Remember, the price you pay for the house is only one piece of it. It's the monthly mortgage that you got to look at. And a raise of 1% or more in the monthly mortgage costs can be the difference in a large change in the price of the house. So you want to get the house at a low price, which it is now, and you want to get it when you can pay a low interest for 30 years, which it is. So that would be my first comment. My second comment would be, I think it's going to be a little slower, but I still, I, I'm feeling pretty good that we're beginning to bottom out in commercial real estate. I think there's a couple of hiccups coming in a few markets, but by and large, I think commercial real estate is going to be fine. By the way, when you look at the housing thing, don't look at housing starts necessarily. What you want to look at is where housing permits are in six months, not starts. And you want to look at how much of housing has been absorbed off the market, meaning not first owner of house, but second owner of house. Okay, other, other ones I get asked during the month, Howard, I get asked about gold. Uh, clearly, gold is a hedge against inflation. You've heard me say in this in this call again, inflation is going to be the issue this year. Will there be some upward pressure on gold? Possibly. But there's also a downward pressure on gold, and that's the cost to hold it. And as everyone has seen, the market now, the stock market, has been performing very, very well. Uh, I don't think the stock market is going to have a hiccup in 2011 unless something you know extraneous happens that's not seeable or foreseeable today. So with the stock market being a better place to put your money, I think takes some of the pressure out of buying gold. Stability in the world will take some of the pressure out of buying gold. And, of course, there's the big one, which is in the bond market. And, and the treasuries now are up over three. Um, the bond market will have to pay more money to get your money, which means you'll be able to get bonds with reasonable returns that are the 3% and above rate. And I believe because of the profits of companies generally were way up in 10 and will be further up in 11, that means that corporate debt is going to become increasingly attractive as a return. So in a world where you can get a quarter of a percent to 1% for a CD, all of a sudden buying a decent corporate debt, and I'm not even talking about you know prime, prime, prime obligations. I'm talking about reasonable obligations. And when you say and that debt, debt, you're basically meaning bonds. Yeah. Cor yeah corporate bonds. Right. Of course, yeah. Well, you, I don't think this audience is going to be buying commercial paper, although clearly that's for the people who are listening that know that market. They can call me separately. We'll talk about commercial paper market, which is a very attractive market right now. But I'm talking about you know, corporate bonds and, 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 and government bonds, both. So I see government bonds going up because of inflation. I see corporate bonds going up because of the way to get the capital. They've got the ability to service the debt. Those bonds are increasingly safe. Why not take a higher yield than what you're getting in a CD? 
Any other any other uh, item you want to hit today in that class? Well, in the we class? do have a question that's popped up on our screen, which I'd like to open up that line and uh, let this viewer um, ask their call. If you want to hold on a second, okay, you're on the air. Hello. Okay, I believe whoever was there probably has hung up, so I'm going to close that line back down. And, oh, whoever uh, is, hopefully they'll call back in. Yeah. So let me segue to the question about water that Lisa had posed earlier. And the first part of that was about privatization of water resources, and uh, she expressed the belief that seemed that that was uh, counterproductive to social stability and, and society in general. What are your thoughts on that? And then our yeah. second part was a question about desalinization, the impact of that. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, with regard to water itself, uh, there will be pushback, but as you know, Howard, the trend increasingly at a global rate, a global level, is for more and more privatization of water. I'm not in favor of that trend. I think that um, water being the base commodity that sustains human life, if there's a thing that the government ought to be involved with in terms of ensuring the availability and the quality at a reasonable price of any commodity that we have, clearly water would be the number one commodity to do that with. Uh, I mean, you, the two things you got to have to survive are air and water. Uh, we're not doing a good job with either one. But in the case of air, it's harder to sell bottled air, except in Japan, where, as you know, they do sell it. <laughs> Here in the U.S. In, in other countries, it's bottled water or water that's controlled and sold through cities by private companies. So I can tell you for a fact, private water companies, so whether they sell water to municipalities or whether they sell water in bottles, that industry will continue to see favorable marketplace reception. And depending on the individual company, I'm not going to pick one today, but there are a couple of companies that are very well positioned to continue growing in a world that unquestionably is going to get shorter and shorter and shorter of water every year. Talk about drinkable water. But it's also going to be true of water for agriculture. I mean, people don't realize this, Howard, but the, there's a vast portion of Syria, which was like their breadbasket. It's dry as a desert there. Uh, I already commented on the droughts in Argentina and China. So not only is there not going to be enough water to grow crops, we're not going to have enough water to drink. So we're in a situation which is a very long-term situation. And when people don't have water, they do crazy things to each other. So we have a, a socio-political issue as well as an economic issue. The economic issue is can you make money off of a scarce commodity like water, which will continue to be increasingly scarce? The answer is yes. Will there be social-political implications? Yes. Will some countries seek to re either nationalize nationalize or renationalize their water supplies, meaning take it out of the private sector, even while other countries are putting more into the private sector because they have scarce financial resources. These are what we call the water wars. And it's going to, and, and you're also going to start seeing increasingly where the people of the cities, it's already happening in California, are pushing back against the farmers saying, you know, cotton is the craziest thing in the world to grow in a place like California because the amount of water cotton consumes, not to mention the incredible amount of pesticide you have to use to poison the ground to keep it, to grow the stuff. Cotton doesn't make sense in America. It makes no, and if it wasn't so heavily subsidized by the government, no one would grow the stuff. And lo and behold, if you would release all the water that the farmers are putting into cotton, which is basically subsidized, all of a sudden you'd have enough water for people to drink it in the cities, and they wouldn't have to be fighting with the farmers. And you could grow all the... I believe something like 80 to 90% of all water production, or however you want to measure it, in California goes back into agriculture. And the right. ag and huge is by far the largest consumer of water in the state. 
That's right. And this is typical. I mean, this, you particularly have it in the West, but see what's interesting, Howard, this is happening all over the world. So the comment about water, was we started with, can you make money in water? Yes, unfortunately, because it's going to become increasingly scarce. And the quality of water is going to become increasingly important. And we could talk about other ways you could make water in the future, make money on water, such as companies are going to increasingly go into the business of reclamation of water, so-called gray water or gray water recycling. You're also going to see far, far more intelligent uses of even um, of human wastewater. Uh, this, we're not going to be just dumping it around anymore. Now, let me segue from that economic issue. And I talked about the social political implications where there will be conflicts within society. Some conflicts are called, let's nationalize the water company that we sold to a private interest years ago. That's already starting to happen in certain countries. The other problem of the, of the clash will be farmers versus city dwellers. I've got to drink it. You want to spray it on cotton. I'm going to win that eventually because there's more of me once the federal government gets the message So, and the state government. Now you go to the third level. The overall issue with water, and, and I think this is what, uh, was Lisa was the one who called us and wrote us on this one? Yes. Yeah. Lisa, Lisa, if you're listening, I hope you'll call in because I'd love to hear your statement of it. Lisa wrote us with a very interesting question, and it has two components about desalination. And she specifically referenced a plant in San Diego, which I'm going to talk about. And if anybody wants to follow up on this, um, I'm sure we'll put something in the next Currents and Commerce, our newsletter, so you can read more about it. But she specifically said that she was really troubled by this particular plant in San Diego, which, by the way, used to be a power plant and is being converted. So the intake pipes that they're using in this desalination plant are the intake pipes for the old power plant that's been shut down. So because those pipes have been there for many, many years and been sucking seawater in for many, many years, they are being allowed to do that even though we know historically, this is particularly true with nuclear power as well, the amount of water you suck from the ocean even when you put screens up, does kill a lot of marine life. There's no question it does. And then you suck it into the plant, you heat it up, and you discharge it in the ocean. It's not a good thing. The new technology, which people are going to go to for desalination, will be taking water from the ocean bottom rather than sucking it in at a fairly shallow level. There's a whole bunch of reasons why that will be a superior technology. And I want to report that in San Diego, the commission that approved that large plant, which now is approved, by the way, it's the largest desal plant, I think, certainly in California, one of the larger ones in the world, that desal plant will go online in San Diego. And they're going to let it continue to use the old pipes. But they've announced that the next desal, which will be even bigger in San Diego, will not be allowed to use that technique and will be required to take it from the ocean bottom. That's a huge change that's better for the environment. But let me talk first about desalination in general. We have no choice, folks. Desalination is the future. Why? because we are going into a period of time where ocean water will become increasingly, increasingly what we have to live off of as humans. We are losing every glacier on the planet. And just to give you some statistics, 1.2 billion people, that's billion, 1.2 billion people in the world live off of glacier melt, if you will, snow-capped mountains that melt. Those people aren't going to have, those 1.2 billion aren't going to have that much longer. Uh, we're already seeing massive destabilization of the Himalayan plateau, which is at the 12,500-foot level. Right, which so you, I, we should mention that that is roughly one-fifth to one-fourth the world's population right now. Right, it's depending on snowmelt, basically. Right. And, and that's the, the glacier melt, specifically, which glaciers are all everywhere in the world are going away. So you're going to have to go to the ocean. And there's an interesting question, which we aren't going to have time to touch on on this show, is if you had all the water in the world at the ocean, how would you get it up the mountain? There is a way, but we'll talk about that next next program, maybe. 
So we're going to do desalination. Now, what is the biggest problem with desalination? There's two problems. One, the intake mechanism I already touched on, which I think most thoughtful, environmentally sensitive organizations, including the one that runs it here in California, is going to require a more thoughtful way to extract the water from the ocean, i.e. from the bottom rather than from the side. Number two is the energy consumption for desalination. Now, there has been tremendous strides forward in desalination, largely in part because so many uh, Middle Eastern countries have been buying desal plants. Um, Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, uh, I think there's a, uh, the UAE, United Arab Emirates. I mean, they've been buying these plants, and that's been helping to bring the cost down. But the other thing that's going to bring the cost down is when we run these plants on renewable energy. And that's where the fun comes. You see, and it's too long a conversation for this particular call, what we have to do is take and link the huge potential of hydrogen, which we can get 100% from renewable sources, to run our power plants that do the desal. When you link hydrogen from natural resources, meaning wind, photovoltaic, geothermal, when you, when you extract hydrogen that way and you use it to run the desal plant, the energy costs will even out dramatically, and over time it will be cheaper than you can imagine. So we are sitting at a time when we know the entire universe, by, by the entire universe, is made up with about 73% hydrogen. We know that every, every source of power in the universe is a star, and all stars virtually are hydrogen fusion reactors. So the, the universe runs on hydrogen. It's just our planet that indirectly doesn't. And we're going to go to the hydrogen economy. Those of you who have been following the Academy's work since 1986 know that we started really talking about this at least eight years ago. So as we convert from a fossil fuel-based economy, we'll have no choice. As we do that we will, and we convert to hydrogen, we can tap the abundance of natural resources that we have, create hydrogen right today. I'll give you a statistic. And you can, this is interesting. We can create hydrogen, I know for a fact, at the Geopuma facility on the Big Island of Hawaii for around the equivalent of a dollar fifty to two fifty per gallon of gas. In other words, if you take the BTU equivalent of hydrogen, it's a kilogram roughly to a gallon, it, that's what it's going to cost. So for less than you're paying today to drive your car, for a dollar to a dollar and a half a gallon less than you're paying to drive your car, you can have a desalinization plant per gallon running using nothing but natural resources, geothermal in this case. Um, Lester Brown uh, has written extensively about the, 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 the ability to produce wind power at a nickel per kilowatt hour, which is correct, or less. Right. No, I don't want to rein you in too much, but we are beginning to run uh, time-wise a little bit long here. And I did want to ha ask you to kind of finish this up on desalinization and then to move on to your stock pick of the day. Great. So the, I think I've covered it, actually, Howard, and your, your timing is perfect. So desal is going to be with us forever, the, for few, longer than you and I will be alive, and probably longer than our children will be alive. And the way to do desal, to make it economically desirable, is using renewable resources. Hydrogen is the carrier. The way to do it environmentally is take the water from the bottom of the ocean. Let's stop there. I think that covers it. I'm sorry Lisa didn't call in, but Lisa, I hope that helps you understand what's going on in San Diego. If you have a follow-up question, either ask it on the show or send us another email like you did last time. Okay. With that, Ronaldo, let's go to your, your stock pick and your thoughts on this. This is a new component of the show that we're going to be introducing each month, and I'll let you take it away from there, Ronaldo. Well, first of all, I want to, I, I want to brag a little bit about our general electric pick. Um, we picked GE, gosh, nine, ten months ago. Uh, it was at $14 a share. 
I gave the reasons for that then. If anybody wants on another show, ask a question, I'll give you the reasons why I picked it. I can repeat them. And we correctly said that GE was going in the right direction, and GE actually is hitting 20-plus per share now. So if you do the math, that's a 50% improvement in less than a year in one stock, which is very stable. We told people to do it. I did it. Did very well, as Howard knows. He's, he was the one who executed the trades for me. And um, I, I think that there's, there's more legs to GE, although the big, the big move has already happened. Today I want to talk about Ford Motor. I actually put out a, recommend, a buy recommendation on Ford Motor Company on January 30th of this last month. And uh, the reason I did it is uh, I saw that, st- that the stock took a hit. It was, maybe it was January 31 of the 1st of February. It was right in there. stock took a hit. It went down about, I don't know, was it down about 20% one day, Howard? I think about 15 18%. 18%, um, yeah. Initially, one yeah. Day. yeah. And so it, I fell, took a look. it fell from uh, 1897, to be exact, on the 27th of January to 1550. Oh, I'm glad you got the notes there. Okay. Yeah. So... So when I saw that fall, I looked at because I follow Ford Motor Company. I like the fundamentals of the company. I like what Alan Mulally is doing there. And I analyzed what the drop in earnings came from in the fourth quarter. There's two things I observed. Number one, 2010 was the best year Ford Motors had in I don't know how many years, even though it had a weak fourth quarter. And then I looked at where the weak fourth quarter came from. And it didn't come from America, where it's competing against General Motors and Chrysler, both of whom have bailout money and were able to restructure their debt, so they should have had a greater competitive advantage. Where Ford was expensing its cost was in Europe, actually, as they're ramping up over in Europe. So I'm thinking to myself, hmm, if Ford took the hit in Europe uh, in terms of profitability, and they still have the best year they've had in many, many years, then it tells me, and they've already done a very good job of restructuring their debt in the private markets without government help, it tells me Ford's going to have a very nice year for next year. And even though it will be less than they would have originally predicted, and I think the original prediction was for $3, they brought it down to 240 $242 something, a lot of share, it's still going to be a big upswing. If you put any kind of reasonable multiple to it, you're going to find that Ford needed to trade up by at least 10 to 15%. Now, since we put out that recommendation, it's already started going back up. What is it today, Howard, do you know? Well, I don't have it today, but yesterday it was 1609 Okay, uh, and so, let me also just quickly issue a little disclaimer that as a, an advisor at Morgan Stanley, I am not recommending any particular stock, uh, particularly on this show, and that would be inappropriate for me to be doing. Uh, and I, but I do want to add in that Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, has an outperform rating on Ford at this point um, and a target, uh, which we call a price target for 12 to 18 months out, of 21. That target had been 23 before the last announcement, but again, it's still rated outperform uh, with a $21 target. Which Again, I'm in terms of its appropriateness, let me just finish my uh, In terms of appropriateness, it's something each of you must individually evaluate in terms with your own broker and or advisor. Right. That now being let's said, go, not, no, back to you. Let me finish. So, so why did I tell you about Ford? Why did I tell you about GE? And why will I keep doing this? Not because I want you to all rush out and buy GE or Ford when I tell you that, although you're welcome to do it. That's what I do, and it makes money for me, which is nice. But the reason I'm telling you is I want everybody to start analyzing fundamental information. The reason people don't have good results managing their own money is because they're listening too much to people who have an economic stake in what they say. And what I'm trying to do with this show is I'm trying to give people a new sense of fundamentals. So when I look at a company like Ford, I don't look at how the market thinks about Ford. I look at what I think about Ford. And if you remember the comments I made about GE nine, ten months ago, you'll remember why I said that GE was fundamentally a better company. 
Ford is fundamentally a better company than it was three or four years ago. Ford is actually doing things that I like. And so because I can focus on it as an example, and I can say, you see, if you look with my eyes at fundamental things, at real basic things that anybody can learn, anybody can do, then you will see where your long-term interests are best aligned. This is why, and I think most of you have heard me say this before, in the 10-year study in which we looked at companies with socially progressive agendas outperformed the market significantly. Socially responsible companies outperform the market. Why? Because a company that's socially responsible is manifesting that they can work on fundamentals and do a better job being fundamentally stronger. Will they have ups and downs because the marketplace plays their stock? Yes. But over time, that evens itself out. So where I am right now is I want folks to start looking at fundamentals, which is what we write about. And, and, you'll, and by the way, I, I recommend again highly Paul Krugman writes about fundamentals. His column on uh, a commodity increase in values uh, last week in the New York Times was excellent. Um, and so I think there are people who are out there giving lots of good information, and all I'm trying to do is get this audience to start thinking a different way, and then you'll be less of a victim of Wall Street and more a captain of your own destiny. Does that cover it for today, Howard? I think that's perfect. Let me again remind our listeners, if you want to raise a question, uh, we will run a little bit over time today. We will be here. Uh, that number is area code 347 989-8946. We also invite you to email us uh, between shows to let us know what you like, what you didn't like, uh, and other ideas and thoughts you may have or questions you may have. And for that, you can just simply go to the site of the World Business Academy and that email address, I'm sorry, not the, the web address is www.worldbusiness.org. And with that little commercial out of the way, let's go to our last topic. Howard, let me add one more commercial. The commercial I want to add is this. Um, we, a number of the listeners in the show, and they keep growing, which is great, um, actually come to the Academy for specific confidential reviews of their plans, hopes, dreams for their financial issues. We at the Academy do not make any money ever on buying or selling a stock, a bond, or anything. We're a nonprofit. Our job is to provide information. But we do have that service. And if people are interested in that service, and many people have taken us up on that service, and in fact, some people come back to us periodically for a review of their portfolio, we're more than happy to analyze for you what we think of the fundamentals in what you're doing. And don't hesitate to contact us with that. So we'll, we'll never tell you to buy or sell something because we make a commission on it, because we don't. But we will tell you what we think is fundamentally going on in your portfolio and what, with your particular interests, you might want to start considering. And because we don't make a profit or and frankly, you don't even make a commission on whether you do something, we're probably the best source for neutral information. And as um, you know, as they say, knowledge is power. In fact, knowledge is king. So that's my little commercial. If anybody's interested, be sure to follow up with us by contacting the Academy. And I think, is there a last segment today on financial engineering, Howard? Well, no, actually, we have one last topic before that, which is the uh, recent commission that uh, looked into oh. the financial crisis of 2008. And... We wanted to know what you thought that report, that report actually portends for the future. Okay. So first of all, segue. I cannot believe. I heard something so profoundly stupid on the news this morning. I called one of my best friends who's a Republican and a very thoughtful financial guy. And I said, you know, I, I can't believe what I just heard. i got to ask you. you know, the, 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 there's a significant block of the Republican Party in Congress this morning said that they wanted to defund Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because they could save that money. Why spend the money? And as I said to my friend who is a 
self-declared Republican and a thoughtful financial guy. I said, am I missing something? Or would, is that so bonehead dumb, it would literally collapse the entire U.S. housing market? Or am I missing something? And my friend said, no, that's probably what it would do. I said, right. So why on earth? But before before you go on, let's let's rather than scare our listeners, let's talk about the real reality or the prospect of that actually happening, which I, I zero. suspect is zero. It's zero. Yeah. But the reason for making the comment, Howard, I made an aside earlier in this call about the silly season in Washington. Okay, I, I think that anybody listening, and particularly if you're a Republican listening, please contact your legislative leaders, your congressmen, your state senators, and the same thing with Democrats. I want you all to start demanding some logic, some sensibility, some some intelligence in our financial affairs at the political level. And that was my segue into the comment you asked me about with the Financial Commission that released its report. And and I happen that I've known of Phil Angelides' work with the chairman of that commission for many years. And I know he really means well. He's a very smart guy. The commission released a report on why the financial crisis happened. But first of all, you have to know. They were given a mandate to investigate a wide swath of conduct. They were given an $8 million budget, and they were stonewalled by virtually every federal agency of the U.S. government and not given any cooperation on any of the potential prosecutions. It's interesting that not one person has been held accountable for the collapse of the financial system of the world. It started here in the United States. And you got another bill pending in the House Agricultural Committee where they now are saying, gee, maybe we should undo the Dodd-Frank bill because maybe they're going to be too tough on, 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 on credit default swaps or CDOs, which is what triggered the, this calamity. What am I saying in the nutshell? I am saying that the federal government has been totally derelict in its duty. That report is garbage. In fact, it's not even a report. It's three reports in one. There's a Democrat version, there's a Republican version, and there's a dissenting Republican version. And none of them are worth the paper they're printed on because they were all pussyfooting around the central issues. And, and the fact of the matter is that report, if you look at it, and if folks want, there's a, it's a 400-some page report, so if you want the, the Cliff Notes version, you can go to the New York Times. They have a very good summary of it. I think that we have to really, folks, we've got to demand adult conduct in Washington. It, it, it's not safe for us to permit what's going on in Washington as business as usual because Virtually every single thing that caused the last economic collapse is still in place now. The only thing that would be different is if, if the commodities exchange actually starts to really regulate CDOs, which we think is a very valuable thing, and the fact that that's going to be gutted or potentially gutted is insane. So what the report does, and, I'm, and I hate to be so negative on it, but I was really hoping that we'd see something come out of that like what we saw come out of the Great Depression which was a great analysis of what went wrong in a series of rules to stop it from happening again. Um, the Frank Dodd bill was helpful. We've had some financial regulation reform, very little. And I would say that if you, took, if you say that 100% of the conditions that caused the grass collapse, maybe 80% are still there. It's that little change. And this Going report comes depression. out and whitewashes the whole thing, and it just, it's, just, it's infuriating. Going back to the, the Great Depression, Ronald, let me raise a point and get your opinion on this. It appears to be the biggest lesson of history of the Great Depression was that the only entity capable of re-stimulating the economy and then getting that economy moving forward through private industry was, in fact, the federal government. And that during the early 30s, when the government started raising taxes and uh, trimming budgets, that we had a second double dip of the Great Depression itself. 
how does that reflect what's going on today? Aren't we in danger of doing the same thing uh, based on our, our inability to learn from the past or apply the lessons of the past? Yeah. There was a very – one of the heroes uh, in the 30s was a man named Ferdinand Pecora. People don't even know who he is anymore. But he led the, the very famous congressional investigation of 1933, which actually brought um, the financial community in front of the Congress and cross-examined them for real. And, and I want to point out something about Pecora, because everybody agrees now that his report got to the heart of what caused the Great Depression. And we don't have a Ferdinand Picaro today, and we don't have a, a legitimate role. I mean, the government has not performed its legitimate role in analyzing what happened and taking steps to prevent it. So just, that's just the bottom line. But I want to say something that's encouraging. What's encouraging is that Picaro was the fourth guy in that job. The first three failed. It took him five years after the crash to really analyze it. So what I'm hoping and why I'm bringing this up today in our call, and if you hear the frustration in my voice, it's genuine, is because we... We don't have five years, folks. We got to get we got to get better at it now. We we live in a world that's working at warp speed and internet speeds. We need to demand that our government investigate. I can assure you, I know what they're going to find if they do it, and hold accountable those entities and individuals who brought on the global collapse that we just went through, with a view to preventing it from happening again. If we do not do that. You're going to see things happen in the next 5, 10, 15 years that are going to curl your toes. So we really need as citizens, remember the, the, the subheading of, our, of every call is, this, I call this what we do is the interface. It's, it's, it's a commentary on business and society. So we've got to hold business responsible for a better society, and we can do that. That's the, that's the academy's preaching all the time. And I'm asking our listeners to keep growing, would you please help us? Would you please help us get values in our business institutions which support social growth and health? Because if you do that, then we can hold our politicians accountable and we can get a set of rules that we can live with rather than business as usual. And my last comment is one of the conclusions of Pecoraro's report was, in effect, we can't have companies that are too big to fail. What has happened in this last 2008-2010 collapse is now over, 2008-2009, 10 was the beginning of the mending, What's happened is the bigger got bigger. Those who were too big to collapse in the first place ended up being allowed to consume so many other companies. They're even bigger now. So if they were too big to fail before, they're much too big to fail now. We have to stop that. We either have to regulate that in an appropriate way, which would mean Glass-Steagall and the like, bringing those walls back, or we have to say, you know what, we just can't have you be that big because you're too big a risk to the country and to the world ultimately. Give, you, give the choice to, the, to particularly the banks, the financial institutions. And when we do that, let's simultaneously demand that our government stop taking such good care of the big guys who pay the lobbyists and start taking better care of our community banks, who basically are getting the short end of the stick right now, and that's who's doing the real lending in Main Street America. We need to take care of community banks, even when we hold the big financial institutions accountable. Ronaldo, we're coming up on the noon hour, so we have a minute or two left. And again, we'll stay on the line for any further questions that people might have who want to dial in. But any last-minute comments you'd like to add today as we uh, wrap up this show? Well, let's put off the financial engineering conversation until next week because it's a term people need to know. As folks know, we have a segment here in the show called uh, Enhancing Your Financial Literacy. And um, that's an important term you need to know because it goes to the heart of what's going on. I also want to talk uh, in the future, Howard, about the price-earnings ratio. I've got some good questions on that. 
And I want to talk about the fact that companies are increasing their dividends and why that's important. And last but not least, all three of those are tied to a change we need to do in this country where we can change ourselves from a country that's basically tax-sheltered if you use debt and we're tax-disadvantaged if you do equity, meaning we've built a set of rules which prizes debt and does not prize equity. It makes it smart to take a loan if you're a big company and pay interest, which is deductible, and it makes it stupid to pay a dividend to your share owners for owning your stock, which causes volatility in the market and causes the entire casino Wall Street to exist. So we'll talk about that next time because these terms, financial engineering, price earnings ratio, and the, the, the dividends, price dividend ratio, all of these are now in play in a way that I think could really help us change the collection of revenues for the federal government and take the gambling out of Wall Street and in its place put what we did all along in this country until fairly recently, which is build equity by building things. We're capable of it. We have all the information and knowledge we need. What we lack is the political will. So people have to understand, business runs the government. So at the time we are in now, we need to be able to tell our business institutions and our government that the people are getting smart enough they can demand a different solution. If a million people can do that in Egypt, we can do that in America. And when we do it in America, the rest of the world will benefit. Okay. Ronaldo, not seeing any further questions, I think we will bid our audience farewell today and thank them for listening. Uh, it's been a great show, and we hope you'll be back next month uh, and look forward to hearing from you all again. And my last question is, Howard, I'd like to ask people listening, would you please send us comments? Tell us what parts of the show you like. Tell us if you like the amount of editorial comments I make, if you would like less and more data. Um, get us some feedback on what's working for you so that we're not doing this in a vacuum because our job here is to serve you, and that is what we love doing. So please give us that feedback. And thank you all for listening and for telling your friends. And again, thank you, and have a great month. We'll talk to you next month. Bye-bye now.